Hello and welcome to Two Pre-Sales in a Pod, your authentic global voice for the pre-sales and buyer enablement world. And we have some fun along the way too. So thanks for joining us and don't forget to find out our top tips on today's topic at the end. Welcome to episode 57. This is Two Pre-Sales in a Pod and we're welcomed here by Peter Cohen, star guesting and other star guesting Rob Dean. Uh, welcome to you both. It's wonderful to have you here. I'm Mark Green. We've got Adam, Tom, and we're talking today about lead churn. Peter, what is what is lead churn? What is lead churn? <clears throat> have you ever had a situation where you were a prospect reaching out to a vendor and <clears throat> you got disqualified in some way for some reason before you got what you wanted? Um, as a result, you said, you know what, the heck with this. There are many other vendors in the same space. I'm going to go to pretty much anyone else rather than go back to this vendor that didn't give me what I was looking for. That's lead churn. It's horrible when you think about it, because what it means is you lost that potential lifetime value of a customer even before you really engaged. So I've had an experience of being on the end of that, actually, um, that's worth sharing. So I um, I saw a bit of kit I liked. I reached out and said, hey, you know, can I get a, can I get a video of this? Have you got some kind of the harbour tool walkthrough? Because it was something we didn't use. Um, therefore, very hard to kind of go through a discovery session because actually we don't know how we're going to use it. I needed to understand the tech. Um, the answer to that was no. I was like, okay, well, can someone take me maybe through a harbiter and I can kind of see if it's if it's worth me investing my valuable time in committing to the sales process? No, we can't do that. But what you can do is earn the right to an interrogation for an hour with somebody who really doesn't understand what you're trying to do. And if we interrogate you and we deem you eligible, worthy. then we'll talk about doing them. And I was like, no, do you know what? That's not. Fast forward 12, 18 months. That same company was reaching out to try and get me to have a look again. And I, I still carry that baggage into that of going, actually, I don't want to have a look because I didn't enjoy the experience. And talking about not enjoying the experiences, my my spam folder and very occasionally my inbox gets filled up with, um, with people who are trying to get my attention to come and come and see their tool, see their software, see their service. And, um, there's this whole bit that I think they miss that because they've gone with, gone in with that unprepared disconnected approach one time, just like you say, my memory of memory of that will be not caring. So why are they going to change? So this is, this has been an ongoing challenge. I, I believe in industry for, for a long, long time with the, uh, the appearance of the first SDRs and BDRs who represented um, a layer between the prospect and knowledgeable people at the vendor, um, they began what, what has been termed by my old boss, the sales prevention team, a bunch of people who are basically designed to keep the sale from progressing inadvertently. <laughs> Not their fault, but it's their job. And the uh, Adam just described this beautifully, but I cannot tell you how many times uh, I or colleagues have run into the situation where reached out to a vendor, said, hey, I'm interested in getting an understanding of your offerings. The art of the possible is what I'm looking for. And they said, are you the decision maker? And I said, well, sort of. I'm one of many. They said, is this an active project? And I said, well, not yet. And they said at that point, oh, well, then no. <laughs> you are disqualified. You do not deserve a demo because we only want our salespeople to invest time where they can actually make a sale. 
The end result of that, of course, was I said, fine. <laughs> and at that point, I also said in my brain, I will never go back to you guys again, because all I wanted to do was to get five to 10 minutes worth of, of show me what's possible with your software, which, by the way, leads to a, a, a concept that has been ignored. And that is maybe maybe we should put frontline people who are initially talking with, with prospects. Um, maybe we should pe use people who are much, much more knowledgeable so they can actually address some of those concerns. And instead of having leads churn, leads then actually are encouraged to come back when they are in an active buying process. Tom. Well, yeah, I, I was going to say, I've had an experience very, very similar to yours, maybe going even a step further, um, where it's been from the vendor's perspective, it's, it's an outbound lead. So a BDR has contacted me and got me excited and promised the world and told me all about these great outcomes. Can I book you in for a demo? And I said, yes, of course. It was clearly a day when I wasn't doing too much. I'm much more willing to <laughs> go along with these things. I'm not too busy. I said, yeah, absolutely. But then the next stage was I was passed on to a salesperson. And, and look, we know that salespeople, they've got targets to hit. So of course they want to qualify out as early as possible. If I was a salesperson, I'd be trying to do the same. And I had a very similar experience to you, Peter, where it was almost like going through a list of qualification questions to say, you know, are you the budget holder? Well, no, I wasn't the budget holder. Are you the X, Y, Z? Do you have a current project and things like that? And I was in that situation too. And suddenly I never even got to see the software. That was the end of that. And I think that results in such a bad experience as a customer because you get promised the world from the first point of contact I probably wouldn't wouldn't have even gone on that company's website, but I was contacted by the BDR or SDR, and then suddenly I was uh, pushed aside because it wasn't a real qualified opportunity. So each of us are data points. Tom, you are a lead that churned. Rob? Well, uh, the question I have then is, the, is, is a methodology like BANT or MEDIC no longer valid in today's working environment? Um, because it feels like if you don't match the criteria that you're not going to progress through this tiny little sales funnel when you may have already been out doing the research and they just happen to have caught you at the right moment. My other, so, my, my other thought would be is, does that differ then in terms of lead churn from a make market to a made market? And how would that impact your, your outreach as well? So I, I would suggest that we need to look at the world uh, less simply. <laughs> and by that, I mean, there are people who are in an active buying process. I'm on a buying committee. We have a critical date we want to, uh, we need to implement by. We have rationale, we have our needs, everything's well-defined. I'm in an active buying process. That's the personality type, of, if you will, the qualified lead that sales organizations are looking for. But, there are many people that are in a uh, just browsing mode. <clears throat> it's early. They just want to, they're just trying to understand what's possible. They're trying to get a sense of, uh, do I have problems in this space that should and could be addressed? Um, and I would suggest based on what I, I think I saw from Gardner, for every, uh, for every lead that's in an active buying process, there's at least an equal, if not double number of folks that are, let's say, um, just browsing. 
And so what that means is we need a we need a, a different way to embrace people that are just browsing so they don't churn. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true because it might be that when you're coming into that, and you, it's okay that you're just browsing. Perhaps you've seen an idea, you, you've got the idea that you want to change, but you don't necessarily know that that change is going to be viable. So yes, you'd like a bit, a bit more understanding, but you don't really want to set up a whole hour's worth of demo, deep dive into the whole product and go through the discovery process and make sure that you do, do all that. Because sure, you do want to do that, but not necessarily yet. To get there, there's that earlier stage that they have to go through to do that little bit of learning. And during that, it's your opportunity to get them that information that they want and highlight a few key areas that they might not have thought of, helping them through to then hopefully, if they've self-served it, then doing a then doing a scheduled demo. I've 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 got to say, this has suddenly made me think about something that I've not really considered before, because you, you mentioned that stat by Gartner. Gartner also says someone's going to correct me because I'm going to get this wrong. Is it 50? Once you, once a prospect contacts a vendor, they're already 57% of the way through their buying journey. Is it 57? Someone tell me. No, no, about. Right. Just, just, just remember 40, 42% of all statistics are made up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, but surely that's only relevant if it is an inbound lead, so the prospect is contacting the vendor, when it's outbound, surely we have to have a completely different approach. And I'd not, I'd not really considered that before this conversation. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm going to think out loud here, which is really dangerous when there's probably 3,000 people <laughs> listening, but I feel in a safe space to do that, so I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I feel that half the problem is that we create an MQL and an SQL, okay? And an MQL is, for anyone not familiar, a marketing qualified lead. You have met the conditions, therefore you can be thrown over the fence into the sales world and you can be re-qualified to see if you meet the condition of sale, which is typically BANT or medical something, but some qualification that goes, I'm going to protect my salesperson's very valuable selling time by applying some kind of qualification that if you meet, you can go into a sales cycle absolutely brilliant and it's all built around the outbound uh, model where i'm cold calling or calls are coming into an office and i need to protect the guy on the road or the girl on the road with the projector turning up at the office covering many miles at, at considerable cost we don't live in that world anymore um or i don't think we should live in that world and i wonder if there's actually a a gate that needs to be created which is a buyer qualified lead which if you look at things like um, some of the products out there that are lightweight that offer the free trials that have probably moved our perception of how we buy on. So I go online, I sign up, I experience two weeks of that product, you know, and that we all have experienced products like that. Changes my perception of how I buy software because I'm, re I'm realizing ROI and the fact that I'm an activated user signifies to that vendor, hey, maybe I should send you an email about pricing because you look like you're getting some value from this. I think as buyers... We've moved past that. Um, we want to experience the product. We want to select ourselves as buyers to go into a sales cycle. So I would ask a fundamental question. My long rambling is leading to this. Are we really supporting a sales cycle? Are we, or are we supporting a buyer cycle? Because that's where these two worlds are colliding. This is where people churn because they're experiencing a sales cycle. They're not in a sales cycle. They're in a buying cycle. They are two different things. Agree. I, agree have, more. Yeah. I mean, I just wrote an article on it. I love. I, yeah, really passionate about trying to shift the perspective. In in my experience, um, 
just just with this little business, there are two types of customers. <clears throat> there are those that, that contact me and say, <clears throat> actually had this happen. A head of sales came, contacted me and started the conversation with, our demo suck. That was his starting point. <laughs> and my response was, I'm sorry to hear that. And then we began to talk through it. So he was in an active buying process. And within a couple of months, we had a series of workshops, um, training his team, and everything was wonderful. However, that's actually the exception. Most of my customers start off as prospects and mature sometimes over a period of months, sometimes over a period of years. I have had situations where we have an initial conversation, invest uh, 30 to 45 minutes to talk about prospect situation. I then follow off with, with here are a range of offerings. Here's full pricing information, completely transparent. Here's other stuff that you're going to need as you progress. Uh, here's some help potential if you need to promote this internally. And then I don't bother them. There's a really interesting idea. I don't bother them. <laughs> I don't say, are you ready to buy yet? Are you ready to buy yet? Instead, I let them mature on their own. And I've had situations where people have come back to me literally eight years later, <laughs> responding to the email that I sent eight years previously saying, okay, now we're ready to go. Now that's not what sales managers would want to hear, but I think the moral on that is that if you provide the things that enable your buyer to, re to be ready to buy when they are ready on their schedule, I think that's a, a solution to this problem, Rob. Well, I, I'm going to do something dangerous as well now and think back to a time when I was in sales, um, because I think there's this paradigm shift in Very the way dangerous. that we're now treating buyers. But the reality was at the time, there was this kind of conflict of interest, because when you met a buyer, if you try to, and you label them, don't you? You label them a suspect or a prospect or, a, or an opportunity. The reality was that as a salesperson, you were going into an opportunity where essentially you wanted them to be qualified under MQL, SQL or whatever other criteria you've got. So that those conditions meant that you could put them into your pipeline as a viable opportunity. And the problem was that there was this element of um, wanting to be in before the competition. And Tom will know what I'm talking about here because this is a, a jointly um, uh, uh, one of those organizations we've both worked at, not naming any names. But, you know, the reality was that you always got in behind the competition. So you were getting into the opportunity late, but you always wanted to get in early so that you could sort of set the stage with the buyer and kind of form their early um, opinions and what they would benefit from buying. Yet, there was this almost conflict where actually if you were in too early, they weren't ready to buy, which meant they went into this marketing rinse cycle. They didn't really get the same experience that they would have done. Were they in the world of actually ready to buy? So the reality I think now is that we have to acknowledge the fact that one, we need to stop labeling some of these so much to the point that we've got to acknowledge that a sales cycle isn't actually a sales cycle anymore. It's a buying cycle, which is, is the buyer in a cycle where they have an ability to start pushing a per for a purchase versus we're ready to send you through our, our little sales funnel? I think uh, that's so, yeah. so the audience you know can't what? see here, but but everybody was clapping and doing thumbs ups <laughs> and yes. cheers in. <laughs> Tell me, what's the room's opinion of what year will it be? And say 22 if you're brave, where 
a company will have a CRM that's organized by buyer stage rather than sales stage. Because yeah. at the moment, I think the problem we have is that it's all, everything is set up like, like that. The sales industry, salespeople are set up like that. And so trying to combine existing sales stages with buyer, buyer journeys is difficult. I don't think it's ever going to happen. And uh, the reason I don't think that is ever going to happen realistically, apart from someone trying to create clickbait on LinkedIn and saying they're doing it when really they're not, is that you still have to run a sales process. There is still a revenue number to hit and you have to control as much as you can that. But what I believe will happen in the way that you've got CRM, I believe someone out there will come up with a platform which is like BRM buyer relationship management. And I think it will be something that the prospect uses to help organize their buying journey and bring multiple stakeholders together that that maybe has some kind of integration to a CRM. I think in the same way that years ago, salespeople didn't have a CRM. They had, you know, Peter will correct me because before my time, but it was be a, a, a file of facts and a notepad and a briefcase the size of, uh, you know, a, a pilot's. And it was that was how you organized your sales, right? And you had an order pad in there and you took orders. So the buyer at the minute doesn't have a system to organize the buying cycle. So I, I think that will be the next iteration of software. So to answer your question, Mark, I don't think we'll ever get there. I don't think we need so, to get So I think we just, we have the opportunity here to found a company. Gentlemen, I give you buyerforce.com. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was going to say, if you think about kind of you, you, going back to the stat that Tom was talking about, so that that point at which the buyer is ready to interact. Now, Cartner have also said that 83% of the buying process happens without any influence from the vendor whatsoever. Part of that is all of the validation and research that the, the buying committee, the buying stakeholders go through, normally instigated by one individual. The reality is you've got a lot of opportunities on the internet to do research around software in particular, you know, like Tech Radar and G2 and, you know, Gartner, et cetera, et cetera. It's a wonder that one of those haven't or will not listen to this podcast and come up with some sort of buyer platform on the back of that, because clearly it's an extension of what they're already doing. Can we I think just if they say do, we need some royalties. We want at least 50% of that platform minimum okay, to, to be viable. Um, we have a very strong team of lawyers here at Two Pre-Sales and the Pod Towers who are prepared to protect our, our integrity. So, no, I, I think you're right. I think that someone with a reputable brand name and a more independent level, I think I, I can see a time where that happens. So I, I think really the, the, it'll happen in, in, in two ways. One, there'll be a company that will create, create that, sure. The other thing is that um, there'll be a race by the uh, bigger software vendors who provide many different tools and capabilities and work on large large tenders to provide that experience for their buyers because they will want to make sure that they are being seen as being surprisingly helpful. And when they're going up against a competitor that's not providing that level of help and assistance and understanding, um, whether or not it's a full system to, to enable that or just an experience that that buyer ends up feeling when they're working with that company, then even if it's the same software, the one that helps those the, the buyer with those activities uh, is going to be the one that's going to win. So I'm I want to riff on um, um, something that, that 
Don Carmichael said in uh, the DemoFest presentation, where he said, this business card here, he said, holding up the image of a business card, is the person that you really want to talk to, and that's that's a pre-sales person, if you're a prospect. And I want to offer the seditious idea that wouldn't it be interesting uh, if the first person that a prospect talks to, whether or not this person is in an active buying process or is just browsing or whatsoever, is actually a seasoned veteran pre-sales person. Now, why, why would I suggest this? Any, suge any ideas? Why would I suggest this? Tom? I've got to say, they're, they're surely the ones who can have a real sort of deep and meaningful conversation from the get-go, right? Yeah. And Rob, you're going to offer? I was going to say the same thing. I mean, literally, they've got the industry expertise. Generally, a lot of pre-sales people have been a customer before, so they know what the pain points already are. So they've actually got a common ground to talk from. So what if, yeah, so what if your first interaction, you're just in a, in a browsing mode. You're Adam Freeman. You're looking for a new uh, buyer. What is it? Buyer, Buyerforce.com. <laughs> and you reach out to a company, buyerforce.com, and you get an experienced, um, seasoned professional. So Tom Edwards gets on the line and says, hi, what can I do to help you? And, and Adam says, well, I'm just really in the early stages. I just want to get a sense of what's possible. Um, you know, what kinds of capabilities are people looking at? And you have a rich conversation. Maybe Tom does a brief vision generation demo. Here's a few key screens from the package of how other folks uh, in similar job titles have, have solved problems. And you conclude the conversations with a, with a mutual agreement to do nothing for now. <laughs> what would be the long-term outcome though of that conversation? Any thoughts? Personally, I can feel, feel like a bunch of sales leaders that would be distraught at the concept of let's do nothing for now. No call to action, no next <clears throat> meeting set, stuff like that, because that's how... It is, but if you start to do enough of them, then you're um, you know that there will be an action um, because you've taken that extra helpful step to help them to help that buyer. Yeah, so Adam will be predisposed to come back to buyerforce.com to that vendor because he established a relationship, he had questions answered. Um, it, it's a great way to begin the relationship as opposed to you're, you're not qualified. Tom and Adam. Uh, well, I did just check buyerforce.com as a website is taken. So whoever owns oh, that website, we're not, <laughs> we're not broaching on it, but I would also literally try and buy that website while you were talking. So it is already <laughs> taken. <laughs> I think what we'll end up with though is a problem because yes, you're right. It's excellent to get through to those pre-sales people and the knowledge and the, and the knowledge and provide stuff. But we already know there's not enough people in the industry to, to to service the need that high up in the funnel. So a lot of people will say, oh, so we need SDRs. We need that funnel to be broken down to the point where we can meet the rising demand as it comes up. So I think any strategy that helps buyers further up the funnel in a scaled way um, really helps here. I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Mark, it's in a scaled way. How, how do you scale that? I wanted to share an anecdote with you. One of the most successful BDRs that I've um, ever met or, or have known of, uh, he works for current customers, but trying to expand them. He is an ex-user 
of the software that he sells. Seriously, seriously experienced guy. So he understands the pain that those people have been through. Um, he's sort of a similar point in his career with a, as a lot of the stakeholders that he's working with. Um, so he can build those very, very long-term, meaningful relationships with senior stakeholders by having that empathy because he's been through those challenges and it works unbelievably well. But I think the the, the challenge is how how do you scale that? How do you get some BDRs with that much experience who have, you know, who have got that background? Sorry, Peter. I, I was going to simply suggest that perhaps if we scale back the number of BDRs and SDRs who are, who are basically setting meetings, people are going to hate me for this, and increase the number of pre-sales experts, if you will, or seasoned pre-sales staff by hiring and developing, and smear them a little bit more broadly, not just in the funnel, but before the funnel begins and after the funnel, if you will, yields a, a real-life customer, um, I think you may actually find a solution to the challenge. People are going to hate this approach, of course, because it's different, because everybody wants you know a nice structured process, blah, blah, blah. But everybody reacted the same way when they said, I, how would you feel if you were interacting with somebody that really understood the products and their uses and, and scenarios and so forth and your first interactions? Oh, I would, I would love that. I would appreciate it. I'd go back to that prospect. And yet... We'll throw it out because it doesn't quote unquote scale. I would be challenging the world to find a way to make this scale. By the way, tools like Consensus could provide a wonderful, viable set of solutions. Well, I wonder on two fronts. So firstly, from a scaling perspective, you wonder whether there almost needs to be a pre-funnel part of the process that is non-sales related that could be part of this almost um, buyer concierge um, part of the funnel, which is about taking buyers through uh, an understanding and a knowledge gain process before they're ready to even get to a traditional MQL, SQL status. And when I think about the way some of the large organizations like uh, Oracle and, and ServiceNow interact with their customers, I mean, they have these groups of individuals who are basically ex-experts from big four and places like that that go to market as business transformation experts or some form of business consultant who essentially go in and they help these customers and companies understand how to change their the digital kind of frameworks within their business it's all free they're not charging like the big four do or any of these consultants do but lo and behold at the end of the process what happens the only software that can solve all of their problems is the one that they're vouching for so in a way to your point if you've got people at the front end of the funnel that have that industry and domain expertise and have kind of walked in the shoes of the buyers if they're able to advocate for that they've almost got an ability to increase the amount of exposure that we're getting to the buying process beyond just the sales funnel. So you almost need to have a buying funnel before you even get into a sales funnel or something similar, perhaps. And there's a, but there's a, but wait, there's more here and it will lead in nicely to future episodes. How many of us, uh, let me rephrase what level of, uh, responsibility to have we played just the five of us here on buying committees so for example mark have you been 
the sole purchaser? Have you been a member of the buying committee, an influencer? Where, where Very much so. So I experience? bought. So when I was at Sage, I was the I was the champion and had to go ah. through and and manage all of the other stakeholders. You know, the head of the head of uh, UK at Sage, and then we had all the strategy teams, and then we had many, many, many other stakeholders when we bought Consensus for for Sage. And I know. I'm so now hold, hold that, that thought for the future. Hold that thought for the future, and, and ask because I think we need to ask ourselves a question. And, and Garen is probably going to be answering this question: What can we do as vendors to enable our champions internally to sell internally? Yeah, well, that's perfect. I mean, I've just been building a bunch of stakeholder guides so that our teams are better able to help our champions at the customers or at the prospects or the buyers. Um, work with their other stakeholders, which, quite frankly, they may not often have to convince of things. Only that now they do, and they might not be very good at it. So this is a little helpful guide to say, hey, you're trying to work with your legal team. This is what they're most likely needing to know. You're trying to get your sales v VP on board. These are the kinds of things that your sales v VP is very likely to need. And so we're really helping them. But as as we're coming to to the end of this podcast, I wanted to go around the room and make sure we give some actionable insights that people can take away, and um, and use at home. So let's go around the room. Um, Adam, I'm going to pick on you first. I think um, having a good read of some of Peter's recent articles on LinkedIn will give you a flavour for some more thinking around this. I know particularly book a demo button that Peter's been promoting recently I think that's worthwhile what I would always say is and I'm always going to champion this right would you buy the way you sell and that's a question I continually ask I ask of people in my network anyone who's spoken to me on a one-to-one -one basis any point in the last six to 12 months will know this and I say constantly asking yourself the question would you buy the way you sell if the answer is no change it if the answer is yes do more of it right really easy sales is as easy as we make it Okay, that's that would be my bit of advice. Go and go and ask yourself that question. And I'll piggyback off off yours, Adam. I I couldn't agree more. Putting yourself in the shoes of the buyers, I'll always. So being in pre-sales, I know how a sales cycle works. But when I bought my flat, I had no idea how to buy a flat. Um, and I'll always remember how my mortgage broker took me through through what the process was going to look like because. Being a first-time buyer, I had no idea what I was doing and what steps I would have to go through. And I think that's something that we can take away for our buyers and our stakeholders that we're working with because we're professional sellers, but they're not professional buyers. It's helping them through that journey as much as we can. Yeah, I'd agree with you, Tom. And I think beyond that, uh, just to kind of follow on from yours and Adam's points, I think there's a lot of information out there if, considering the audience, you know, if pre-sales and pre-sales leaders and sales individuals, there's a lot of information out there that talks to how the buying communities and buying committees are now buying, you know, so there's a lot of stuff out there on buyer enablement, on, on LinkedIn, on the internet, you know, around buyer enablement and stuff like that. I think it's time to really start educating ourselves on what that information is out there and understanding actually what the impact of not embracing actual buyer enablement is today because i think we can have an we can have a significant impact as pre-sales people on the way that buyers buy from organizations and vendors and the experience that they can have wow that's 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 excellent oh 
I've got one, but Peter, jump in first. Peter, so um, the pre two pre-sales in a pod, the legumes who participate in two pre-sales in a pod are constantly putting forth new ideas, some of which are speculative, some of which are hopeful, some of which are really um, looking into the future quite sharply. And I want to suggest that if you look at the technology adoption curve, which really is a culture adoption curve, 16% of you who are listening will say, oh, wow, these are great ideas. I'm going to take a look at this and implement right away. 34% of you are going to say, eh, yeah, I can see, but I need to see proof with somebody else before I try this. Another 34% of you are saying, well, I hear the words you're saying, but I really don't want to change from what I'm doing now because it appears to work and I hate change. And the final 16% of you aren't even here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Yes, yeah, so some great, great stats there. Uh, my my actual insight is to go, please, onto LinkedIn, type in hashtag buyer enablement, have a look at some of the articles that I've written, one of which specifically entitled, You're Selling Software, But They're Trying to Buy Change. Uh, and, and we really, really need to remember that because no one wakes up going, oh, I'd love some software. I mean, perhaps a couple do, but... Not many. Uh, so really try and understand what it is that they're trying to do. Um, with that, we're out of time. So I want to say thank you, Peter, for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure, as always, to have you as part of the Two Presets and a Pod. Um, we look forward to uh, inviting you and, of course, Rob. Thank you for visiting us as well. Adam, Tom and I, and I'm sure Don will be back soon as well. So thank you very much indeed, everybody, and have an excellent rest of your week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Two Pre-Sales in a Pod. We'd love to hear from you on LinkedIn.